0: this week on the in-depth with graham bensinger podcast pro football hall of famer calvin johnson we had the opportunity to catch up with the former detroit lions receiver after his enshrinement in canton ohio and then traveled to his home in the detroit area where we talked for an additional couple hours johnson is just the third player aged 35 or younger to be inducted into the hall of fame something that's only possible by retiring early while also achieving great success on the football field. It's all led to a rather complicated relationship with the Lions, the team he played for during the entire nine year NFL career. Johnson addresses the rift with the team. Mama always tell
1: you, if you got nothing good to say, don't say it at all.
0: And also discusses how chronic pain led to early retirement.
1: I get up in the morning, I literally slide across the floor, like shuffle, because I don't have any bend in my ankles. And the knock at the door that changed his life. I see there's like a bear at the door. I'm like, what
0: the hell? So I started walking to where my pistol's at. You'll also hear from his wife, Brittany, on a few of the topics, including a rather unique proposal story.
2: We were going to France on vacation. He called me and he said, hey, I've got this box, it's in the cabinet, can you go grab it? I'm like, yeah, sure.
0: But we begin the conversation with how Johnson is looking to build his legacy post-football.
3: So I wanted to start actually by talking about cannabis. Mm -hmm. Why did you
1: make the decision to enter the industry? You know, uh, I had my own experiences with cannabis and really I wanted to get down to the science of it, especially after I, I began obviously yeah, using the flower is cool as social. Yeah, it helped with sleep and insomnia. But when I started to use other applications, the topicals and whatnot, and I'm like, OK. This is really there's there's really a lot of healing properties to this that people don't know about because it has that stigma. The fact that it was a Schedule One drug, it was almost a crime itself that we couldn't learn more about you know the healing powers of this plant until now. The Marijuana's federal classification as a controlled substance. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about that, and your thoughts on when you think that changes? Not as. Um at first, you know, I was real sketchy about getting into the business because he's like, "Dang, like the government government literally shut this down if they wanted to." But you see the uh, you know the snowball effect taking place. It's not going backwards. It's too much. One, it's too much money coming into these states. <laughs> it's uh, funny how much times have changed
3: when going back to when you were entering the draft and how much news was made just the f- about the fact that you admitted in private discussions that you once smoked marijuana. Oh, yeah.
1: It's so funny, like, when I first admitted that, it was, a, it was a storm, like, oh my goodness, yada, 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 but it was like, in the combine, they asked you, everybody just asked that question, have you smoked weed? And they, they tell you before that, that is the confidential, it's not supposed to come out, and lo and behold, it came out for several people, but obviously it didn't affect the draft stock, but it, that's had to be what it was for, the reason why it was leaked. You made a point of discussing it during your
3: Hall of Fame speech.
1: It's also time we recognize the potential of phytomedicines, plant medicines, to aid and improving the the mental health and quality of life for so many. Why was that important to you? You know, it really, and I was real subtle with it during the speech. It didn't want to come off as, you know, I'm selling. You know, I even altered my speech the day of. I was like, man, I read through it again. And I was like, yeah, it just feels like I'm selling something. So I tailored it. I switched it around. I kind of, I left primitive in there, but in a different way. It wasn't like I'm talking about primitive. These plants. Primitive in nature, provide an alternative to, this, to their destructive counterparts, opioids. It was hard to, um, to not be a, be a, a salesman for what, what's going on right now in my life. How did your parents react oh, when man. you told them the first time? I talked to my dad about it first. He didn't like it. He wasn't <laughs> as against it as my mom. And he's, your dad's the yeah. laid-back one. Yeah, no, dad's the laid-back yeah. one. He didn't like it, I'm like, I know Mom Johnson ain't gonna like it. And yeah, she didn't like it one bit. You know, when I told her I was in the industry, you know, I thought she was gonna disown me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, did you remember what you said initially? Um, you know I think I think I remember her just saying that you know there's nothing good in this there I mean, it's illegal you, you know you can't make money off of it and stuff like that that was at the time when the industry had just started to turn that was when California was was already going but I mean we're on the East Coast we're in the, my parents are in the Bible belt those are gonna be the last states to go so I understand the stigma I mean we're in the black community we probably have friends and family that have been affected by it so it doesn't surprise me that, that was their um, their, their, uh, their 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 thoughts towards it even me as a young man I know I knew there's. I smelled weed in high school. You know, I had no interest in using it because I wouldn't dare go home smelling like weed because Mama Johnson would kill me. <laughs> yeah, right. So I was talking to her the other night
3: and, you know, she very clearly is proud of, you know, what you are,
1: are doing and the steps you're taking. What was kind of responsible for her shift in thinking? I think just, just communication. I remember I remember we went out on a uh, ski trip to Colorado one time and this is when we were first getting into the industry. We had got denied, and it was a big story. That whole board, that denied us. They got disbanded shortly after because they're probably doing things they weren't supposed to be doing, but we got approved not long after, so. um, So what are you thinking at that point? At that time, at that point, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, we put a lot into this so far, and we might not even have a chance to get in the industry. Nobody likes to fail, but in order to get to where we are and have success, you're going to fail, but you've got to fail for. But that's where we started. We started we wanted to start small, take, bite off a little chunk, and see, see if it's for us and, and move from there.
3: And what have some of the notable steps been for
1: you so far in the growth process of just your business? Just being compliant. It's a very heavy compliance industry. Every little move, if you're moving it from this room to that room, there has to be a, a record of it. If really changing it from this package to that package, there's a record of it. Every movement, there's a record. So, you know, it's it's, it's possibly easy to get to get lost and, and forget a step in there. We're responsible, just, you know, that's when we came into the industry, it was like, we're gonna put a good team together. We've seen the good and the bad. We've been on 16. I have some friends that have been on championships. I fortunately haven't been on a championship but team, but I know what a good team looks yeah, like. Right. You know, we know how to put together a good team. So that's what we set out to do. R- Rob was telling me that
3: everybody kind of, says they're an expert in this industry, but
1: nobody actually is yet? The only experts in this industry are the guys that have been growing since they're like kids, you know, but it's not many real experts in this space. And for us, you know, we use recruiting services in order to find that so-called expert for ourselves in the space, because, you know, we couldn't just go around Michigan, like, hey, how much have you grown? How much are you, there's, there's no real track record, but for guys that have been doing it out on the West Coast and the places that have a legalized market. How do you go about figuring out how to get the product right? Um, just you know, trial and error. You got to grow it right. You got to dry it right, and you got to test it and make sure it's right. You know, but in order to get to that point, there's like a whole there's months, almost you say a year of processes if you're starting from seed. You know, it's like you know, eight months before you actually get a full grown plant. And when did you know you had the the right product? Uh, just I got to try it. Quality control. I take pride in it, I, <laughs> yeah. I do our quality control. Not only myself, but the whole team. And then we have a survey that we fill out, and, and you know, it has uh, different uh, categories in the survey of like how's it taste, how's it feel, how's it, you know. How about long-term goals? So our mission is to be innovative in the space. You know, and just highlight the healing powers of the plant. So, and in, in being innovative in the space is creating new applications. So, maybe there is a new drink, you know, where we could drink it instead of potentially smoking it and maybe harming your lungs. Coming up with new ways to, to, to consume it, to, to, um, to put it in your body so that's effective. Rob had mentioned the desire eventually to go
3: to other states and internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that
1: front? One hundred percent. You know, as long as we we continue to take care of our backyard, build a strong brand. Like I say, we get we have the celebrity behind the brand. But when you, a lot of people like think there's just a splash of the face on it. But when we put those two together, that quality and that celebrity, and just grow it from there, we'll be able to license in other states. How about financial goals? Financially, um, at the end of the day. Um, and not right now, anytime soon, because I feel like we have a lot of work to do in the industry. But be able to, you know, uh, sell our company to a bigger company or just become part of a bigger company, you know, where we could do more and more research, you know, you need money to do that. Because yeah. we got to fund it ourselves, because the feds aren't really doing it right now until, uh, until, until it's not Schedule one anymore. In what ways was the Harvard partnership helpful? Um, for us, you know, just to be on the holistic, the wellness side of this thing, man, to be able to do research and and, and prove the point that, you know, we're in it for the right reasons, that we're trying to create products to help our brethren, everybody deals with pain. So being able to help the masses, you know, that's what this thing is all about. How do you view how the NFL's handled it in recent times? You know, the NFL's changing themselves, um... You know, if the NFL gets something, gives something to the players, you better know they're taking something on the back end, <laughs> you know? So I feel like, you know, they gave the players the ability to uh, have more uh, of the, of the substance, substance in their system so that they don't get really get in trouble for it as much anymore, really, so they could actually have another way to take care of their body and not have to take all the, the opioids that are prescribed because, you know, you get those things too, you know, and obviously we know the destructive effect and how addictive those things can be, and uh, that's another reason why we're in this. Have you reached out to... The NFL to try and engage. On we the have topic? we we've, we've reached out to um, to the teams through people. Um, I know the NFL has uh, put a grant out there where they're going to donate. I forget how much uh, was maybe a million, million dollars, dollars or something yeah. like that to cannabis research. So that's a start. You know, that's a start. That's all I mean. Right now, that's all you can ask for from the NFL because right. I wasn't expecting that.
3: So. And do you see yourself reaching out to the league at some point to try and?
1: Uh, develop some sort of partnership. That's for sure. We're definitely going to. I think that um, when we get in a better position with some of these products that we're talking about, and we're able to do some more research on them, and really show them like, hey, this is this is Harvard research. This is you know John Hopkins research. You know this is institutional research that we're doing here. It's not you know we're not doing this in our backyard. And you talked about you know kind of positive effects
3: of cannabis versus opioids, which yeah. you know are are still commonly used and legal for medical reasons. How often did you use?
1: Uh, marijuana during your career? I use it on a regular. Early in my career, coming out of college, I used it, you know, every now and then. But when I got to the league, it seems like you go from being in college to, you know, can't get hurt, never get hurt, to all of a sudden, once you get in the league, like, you're hurt every day. Really? You know, this is crazy. Cause I, I mean, yeah, I got little injuries in college, but nothing like the league. I guess it's just, you know, you're playing against such bigger, faster players, you know, stronger players. But it definitely increased to the, to the point where I'm using every week, you know, during, during the league. Like, after games, you know, before I go to sleep, yeah. And what made you realize that helped? Uh, just the level of sleep. You know, I, my, for me, I know my, my mind can race where I'm just thinking about something. I'm sitting there like thinking about my speech and my mind's just racing. I'm like, no, something's not right. Something's not right. And I'm up at four o'clock in the morning trying to fix it the day before my speech. And I was finally like, my wife was like, get your butt in the bed. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I just need to go to sleep. And then I wake up the next morning, it kind of it all just came together.
3: How about the most Vicodin you ever had to take and
1: how long that continued yeah. for? I remember, I mean, I took, I took a lot of stuff. I took Vicodin, all. some Oxy's, whatever you could do to play. I mean, that was the mindset. You know, you want to be available, you know. You, you, if you're not available to your team, that's how you get off your team, you know. And, you know, for me personally, I just like to play. I mean, we all just want to play. We always want to be on the field, even if we're hurt, because we understand that everybody's got injuries that we got to deal with. But, you know, that's just part of the game, being able to play while you're hurt. Like I said in my speech, anything that we could take to play, we did. The pain was so severe that I would take whatever I could just to manage the pain to be able to play. The pain began to take a toll on my body and my quality of life. My journey through the pain began to reshape my view of the world. It gave me more empathy and understanding for those who suffer and deal with pain on a daily basis. I want you to know that I see you and you matter and then fight and to do your best to make it through and never give in to the pain. How long a period of time would you have to take it for? Oh, it just depends. Like, so, say for instance, my injury on um, my finger, um, that was at a point in time where I, I was like, okay, the ICs, all this stuff makes my stomach. Like, it didn't make me feel, it felt, didn't feel right. Like, just something about was off. The Percocet, oh man, I took that like two times from my finger, and it, it was great with the pain, but I felt off, like everything was off, and then from that point, it was just cannabis.
3: Looking back now, even if that's commonplace and regularly used kind of when you're in
1: it playing, how much do you think it's actually overused? Like the tour dolls and all that stuff. When I was playing, it was freely available. Like, and they changed it halfway through my career because it was too readily accessible in locker rooms where yeah. guys could just go get it whenever they need it. So that was a pro- probably a change for the better because I think that uh, some people uh, went off the deep end, you know, using other things because of that.
3: And that's where today, present day, as more and more research comes available, uh, that cannabis, you believe, can really step in and Mm. make a big
1: difference? Indeed, you know, there's, I mean, we have what's called an endocannabinoid system. You know, it's almost like cannabis is made for us, you know, because we have receptors that that, that accept cannabis. So um, that's my true belief that, you know, anything that is of the earth, you know, should go into our body. You know, anything of synthetic means, mm-mm. not that I don't, you know, put processed food into my body sometimes and take medicine. But, you know, if I can avoid it, yeah. What's interesting about your, your family is,
3: you know, while you might be the most famous, all of your siblings have oh, yeah. had... A a lot of success in their own right. What about your upbringing do you think is responsible for that?
1: My parents are real involved. Mom Johnson, you know, she's, you know, kind of like a perfectionist to her own right, you know, always trying to do everything to the best of her ability. And, you know, everything she touches, like, turns to gold. You know, she does a great job of whatever she does. And she's, Always on us about school, man. Just all A's, B's, a C is like an F, a C. She's pulling you out of sports, you know, stuff like that. You know, just little, little small threats like that. It just kept us on point. My dad always played the other role. He was just cool, calm, collected, you know. And you know, just seeing him same demeanor all the time, you know, whatever, whatever, with whatever's going on. You know, those two totally different personalities, but we're able to see the work, you know, they put in for everything that they, that they that they got, and that's why we are the way we are. In what ways was your mom strict? We wanted to do something. We knew not to ask mom because we're probably gonna get to no. know. You know, we always ask dad, but um, and then he would be like, "Well, go ask your mom." <laughs> we just didn't. We just didn't bother asking. So, um, but with her, like I say, whether it was school, she's a huge disciplinary, and both of them preach that do it to the best of your ability or you won't know how good you can be. And the worst punishment was not being able to leave the yard, right? Uh, yeah, when you get in trouble and, like, you can go outside, but you can't leave the backyard. And you can see everybody in the cul-de-sac playing kickball, baseball, whatever, football in the street, you know, just, yeah, that was the worst, having to stay in the backyard. What's the most trouble you got in growing up? When I was a kid, we were, uh, it's a grocery store in College Park, and my mom parked up at the top. For some reason, you can move the gear while it was parked and the keys weren't in it. So my <laughs> brother's in the back seat, probably like two years, three years old in his car seat. I'm in the front seat and I, I, I move the gear. I go down this long hill and it's just a hill like this. And then it goes up at the bottom and there's like a tractor trailer at the bottom of the hill. So we start rolling down the hill. Fortunately, like, we're like in the, like, the lane where people drive through and there's no cars coming. I see my mom running down the hill it goes up and it stops literally right before this tractor trailer, and it just comes back and settles in the little valley of the little hill in the, in the parking lot. Man, I got home. Man, I swear my mama grabbed my like flipped me upside down and whooped my. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I ain't never got my butt whooped so bad in my life, man.
3: <laughs> so you're playing for the Lions. It's a snowy game against the Eagles. Uh, yep. She's in the airport, mm-hmm. I believe, going home, yep. and she
1: slips and falls. Mm-hmm. Take it from there. We played up there in Philadelphia. She slips on some ice on the um, going into the airport, and I uh, fell and hit her back. In the process of getting checked out, they noticed some abnormalities and uh, found out she had pancreatic cancer during the process. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you, you know, you hear pancreatic cancer, it's like death sentence. You know, fortunately, she found it, I guess, as early as you can. And went to John Hopkins. Uh, Dr. McCary uh, did a little Whipple operation on her, and you know, she's. That happened, like, five, six years, seven years ago now. Mom, Arca Johnson, I'm thankful for your vision and drive. Her spirit leads her. Her drive pushes her to be the best at everything she touches. And not even a blow, such as pancreatic cancer, was able to dampen her spirit. Why was it important to you to bring it up in the speech? Because, I mean, she, we heard she had it. We didn't know what stage exactly. We we kind of heard it was early. It hadn't really metastasized yet. But every time you hear that, you're like, yeah. And then you find out later that, you know, this has done something already. But, uh, you know, just to see her her faith in action, man, she just, you know, all she was just in, the, in her prayer closet all day, every day. You know, she's in the hospital. She's always in good spirits. You know, always speaking positively, you know, wouldn't let anybody come in there speaking any, or bringing any bad energy or anything like that. So she did a great job of just controlling her, you know, her whole attitude and the effort was then she put into her recovery. What a blessing, an honor, and an inspiration it was to witness and to have you as our mother. What was your reaction when you initially found out? Uh, When I, it just, you know, you just, everything just drops. You know, it's just, oof. It's like, that's, that's the one you, I mean, you might not know much about cancer, but if you know anything about cancer, you know, like, pancreatic is not the one you want to get. So we found out it was just it was a blow. You know, we I mean, sure, we had, my dad had a quadruple bypass, like, when I first got into the league. So it could be easily be without both my parents right now. So, you know, just, just a straight blessing. What was the hardest
3: part about her
1: process of going through that? Uh, just seeing her, uh, you know, she wasn't really, let's say, de- deteriorating, but she was losing weight, you know, and just seeing her looking real frail. You know, that was, that was a scary time. Whether the mom or the dad, uh, your kind of takeaways from going through those experiences? Just enjoy the time that you have and spend as much time as you have with them. You know, right now the business keeps me up here, but you know, my oldest son is down there, so I get back down to Georgia to see them and the family. But, uh, you know, it would be nice to uh, to be living down there and enjoy like all the time I have left with them. We want to take you way back. So what was it about the Fairburn Flames jersey? Back in the day, I played baseball at Duncan Park. And uh, that's where, actually, uh, Eric Berry, he played at the, with the Fairbairn Flames. And every time he was leaving the baseball, you know, from T-ball all the way up to, like, you know, uh, I was in middle school. I always wanted to play football just because it was so cool. They had the orange uh, flame on the helmet with the blue helmets. That's why I wanted to play because the uniforms were so cool.
3: And, and you could have gone pro in baseball what was the offer that you got and why did you ultimately turn it down
1: I know we got one from the Dodgers offer letter uh, I thought I don't know why I thought it was Cincinnati but it might be I don't know when I was playing baseball all growing up high school I started to get pretty good at it you know I was hitting really well obviously I was covering it out center field like 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 no other but baseball got boring because when I started playing football in seventh grade I was running back cornerback I got to high school I hit my growth spurt and they moved me over to receiver, and uh, kind of got good towards the end of that second year, third year, turned it up, and senior year, just kept going. My sister was in college, and my mom would send me up to her at Clark Atlanta, and she would do a little like, tutoring. If there was some course I might need some help on, she would know, just help me out or whatever, and then I got to just chill out downtown and see the college life. You know, just I was like, man. I gotta be a part of this, you know, and then, and then not only foot was football, you know, taking, you know, the precedent, you know, baseball was falling behind, but college life I was thinking about too. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to school.
3: So tell about being uh, twelve years
1: old and the class assignment where you wrote about your future. You know I didn't even know about this until I went home recently and she showed me this letter that I wrote and it was like whoa like literally like spoken into to, to life I sat there and read the letter talking about you know wanting to be a professional athlete and do things that are able to you know help people's quality of life and stuff like that and I'm like wow that's exactly what we're doing right now
3: was, was there something that you said in the the letter that kind of most took, stood I out mean, to I you th- I I think reading?
1: I mean yeah, to, uh, being a professional athlete yeah we i mean, they always wanted to do that but To be able to talk about, you know, how how we're gonna come out here and try to change people's lives and and create a better quality of life for people, and that's kind of exactly what we're doing right now, you know, and and continuing to build. Yeah.
3: And your mom had initially resisted you playing football, but it was something Mm -hmm. about that letter that
1: opened her up to the possibility, right? I don't even remember what it was, but yeah, she said I couldn't play until I got to seventh grade, and you know, from when I was. You know, shoot. However young I was, it felt like that took forever just to get to seventh grade because I wouldn't play football so bad. And then the first day playing football, I wanted to quit.
3: Be <laughs> because everybody's hitting you.
1: Well, yeah, because we had a stupid hitting drill. Like I'm running down the sideline, and then there's like a D lineman coming down at an angle, crashing me like on the, just tackle drill on the sideline. Like they don't do that. I'm like, Where you do this? <laughs> oh, and, and so tell about the butterfinger dubbing. My tenth grade year, I got moved up to the to varsity. I was trashed my first two years. They called me Butterfingers, so I couldn't catch a cold. And they put me in a game and I remember I like dropped like, a couple balls, just hit me right in the hand. There's a big letdown. I think we lost that game. It, like, if I feel like if I would've caught those balls, we, could, we would've easily won the game Could there would've been like big plays and stuff like that. And everybody started calling me Butterfingers, 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 until I started making some plays the next year.
3: But, and, and it was a joke, but it really wasn't. It was a joke, but it wasn't, yeah, right. Do you think going through that experience where you were dropping the passes and people were giving you a hard time, helped ultimately
1: in you oh, yeah. having success? 100% because it's just, you know, all those times it's just like, you know, you get used to people, not used to it, but you know, you understand that, you know, people are going to be mean, people going to say stuff, but it do not affect what you're doing. You know, it doesn't affect how you keep on living. You know, it doesn't affect what what tomorrow's going to bring, because tomorrow can be a totally different day. It just depends on, you know, how you approach it, what your mental, what your mental's like.
3: And you mentioned that throwing the football into the chain link, fence, um, if you could, just explain mm-hmm. the work ethic that's responsible for the success
1: that you achieved. Yeah, man, this just, I saw my dad, you know, you know, grinding day in, day out. So I'm a mom. I go from, you know, flight attendant to school teacher to school administrator to now having her minister's license. So it's like anything you want to do, you can do it if you put your mind to it. we work working until I'm not dropping that no more. And that's why I, like I said put that, that chain on that fence. All I did was go out there and just throw it away, catch it, throw it away, catch it. And then just try to work those hands, just work on the quickness. It's just whatever I see, you just got to be real with yourself, too. Whatever you see you need to work on, you got to attack it. W- what about uh, sacrifices
3: that forces you to make in kind of pursuing your professional dreams?
1: It would have been hard for me to have a family during that time because I don't know how I could have, you know, you know, put all the love into the game and then put all the love into a family at and home and, and, and still be able to, you know, take care of my body, get in my, my hyperbaric chamber, you know, get all my body work done, and then come home with the wife and like, hey, while she's putting the kids down to bed, you know? So every day, so it's just, just using my game ready, my compression, just thinking about all the things I did on a daily basis. Like, I wouldn't have time for family. You got to be selfish with your time. Even if you do have family, you're going to have to be selfish with your time. Your wife is going to have, I mean, my coaches' wives, like, that are in good marriage, there's some real old Gs because, and you got family and kids because, the wife is holding down the household. Right, and probably in... Coaches at work from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., you know what I'm saying? So that's every that's like a daily thing. And probably impossible to have
3: success at everything, or at least all at the same time. mm mm-hmm. um, I mean, you see Tom Brady do it, but... It's, I mean, like, <laughs> there are times that you would catch the ball playing and actually not really have any idea how it got
1: to you mm-hmm. or that yeah. you actually yeah, caught yeah. it. Explain yeah. that. <clears throat> I think it's just... It starts with muscle memory. I think it's just, one, you just do things so many times that you can almost just, like, do it in your sleep. So there'll be times where I go up and make a play, you know, or catch a ball, and I just don't even remember it happening because it's just, I don't know if it's just I'm so used to doing it. You know, almost like when you're driving. If I'm driving south here going, like, to the airport, I almost accidentally get off at the facility. I don't do it anymore, but I almost accidentally get off at the facility just because I've done it so many times. So it's just the same same thing. You know, I'll be running the slant route, and I can do it in my sleep. You know, Matthew, he puts it on me in the same spot sometimes, just depending on how it's going. You just don't even remember. I just remember after to play, oh, how did that happen?
3: <laughs> so your longtime quarterback, Matt Stafford, who we talked to the other night uh, at your party, spoke about how when you first... The two of you started playing together you guys were not on the the same page at all explain that and then what led to you guys syncing up
1: yeah i mean time led to us seeking up time communication and just me getting to understand like okay matthew just always throws a fastball okay get ready (laughs) (laughs) as simple as that (laughs) okay but when was it at its worst after he came back from injury he got injured early and then when he came back you know sean hill had all this touch you know all we have played with like five different quarterbacks you know and then you know, you're used to seeing that change up, change up, change up, and then you come with that fastball all the time, you gotta get back ready. I remember at the time, you know, I was, I was mad because I was like, dude, like, effing my fingers up. But, <laughs> but I, like I said, I just got used to it. And, it just, like I say, it's just one, it's, for me right now, it's more of appreciation. I'm like, man, anybody got to play with that kid. Like, if you're catching that ball with your hands, i call you your receiver now. What do you think of him no longer playing for the Lions? Uh, good for him. Um, he got to get away and go somewhere where he really wanted to be, I think. You know, he spent a lot of time in California. I honestly thought he might end up in Texas. That's where he's from. I'm sure he wouldn't mind going there. But once Dak Prescott showed that he was going to be healthy, I was like, oh, yeah, that's not happening. But, you know, being in Cali, he spent a lot of time there in the off season. I think he's very comfortable. What did it mean for you to have him at your ceremony? Oh, it's huge. You know, I appreciate him coming. I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to make it, because I knew he was going to be in training camp. Right. But I think. I mean, Sean McVeigh is a cool coach. I I mean, I met Sean, so he's a cool guy. And I think that um, just the fact that we have a good relationship, um, me more so with Matt, you know, that he he allowed him to come out. So the Hall of Fame.
3: Um, Take me through everything that you can remember from
1: finding out you were being inducted, okay. starting with the door knock? That day at the door knock, obviously my wife knew that day and then the day before, so she did a hell of a job. But she's never, I could tell when she's like holding something, so she did a good job there.
2: It's really hard to keep a secret from Calvin, A, because we talk about everything, and B, because he's nosy. The
1: way she played it off is she said we had a family call. And we it wasn't out of the ordinary because it's Corona. You know, we would do a, a call, like a monthly call, I just check up, everybody on FaceTime, yada, yada, yada. And she's like, Um, I think my friend Mel's coming over, so I hear a knock, knock, knock. I look at the door, I'm like, Mel? Like, Mel is like, freaking, Mel ain't nothing but like, five, (laughs) five, if that, you know? I see, there's like a bear at the door. I'm like, what the hell? So I started walking to where my pistol's at. He
2: was like, there's a really large man outside, and I'm not expecting anybody. Oh,
1: yeah, I was going to get my pistol. I don't answer the door at night without my pistol. (laughs) It's crazy. We're in Michigan. (laughs) I'm going to get my pistol, my wife is like, do, you, you're good, you do not need your pistol. Once you said that, I'm like, what you mean I'm good? What you mean? And, like, it's nighttime. Did you see this person at the door?
2: Thankfully, he, he came to us and I was like, yeah, I probably can't do that.
1: And she's like, you're good. I'm like, okay, something's up. And then as I'm walking through the door, I'm like, oh, it's starting to sink in. I'm like, oh, and I opened up the door. I was just at a loss loss for words at that point. What were you thinking? I'm like, actually happened. I'm like, it's a dream. That's, that, until uh, t- the, t- the next day, like, I was like, you know, I was literally pinching myself, I'm like, is this real, like, it's <laughs> real.
2: The tears were flowing, and he couldn't stop them. So, I mean, I, you could see that this was something that he, he, I think he believed he deserved it, but he just wasn't sure if he'd get it.
3: What, why do you think that is?
2: Well, his work speaks for itself, yes. but everyone claims he retired early, and he doesn't have the stats that Jerry has. He doesn't have the stats that, you know, so many guys in his position play for much longer. And so he just wasn't sure. It, it can be, it's not just his merit, but it's also politics that play a part in it. So
3: The experience from this past week that most sticks
1: out to you would be what? Just the, embrace, the guys embracing me, you know, uh, the, all the gold jackets embracing me there. Irving and Carter, man, just being able to just have, to have those conversations with those guys that you looked up to, uh, Harold Carmichael, like the first big wide receiver, you know what I'm saying, just, it's, uh, you can't put those conversations in the word, how, what they mean. Trying to keep my emotions in check here, so y'all, y'all chill out, y'all chill out. <laughs> it gives me great joy to call all of you friends. Pause that clock right quick. Hold on. <laughs> I ain't crying.
3: What are you thinking when you see him start to get emotional?
2: Oh, man, I was just... I'm elated. Because I've seen the injuries that he struggled with, and I've seen him having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning, and then him scoring these phenomenal touchdowns and people applauding him. And that was just a com- culmination of all of those moments, even up until... The day that they told him you're gonna be in the hall, he was like, ah, if it happens, it happens. Calvin tries not to get too high or too low. He's usually pretty even keeled. This one, he couldn't stop choosing from year to year, so it was great.
3: Retirement. Um, tell about the conversation with your dad
1: that mm-hmm. ended up leading to you playing in ninth season. I remember sitting there with my arm on the couch, looking out the window, You know, was like, man, dad, I don't think I could do it anymore. My body is hurting. Like, it's not fun, you know? And he was like, well, You think you could do it again? And I sat there and I was sitting there thinking about it. I looked out the window, I looked up, and it was like, and before I could say anything, he's like, well, you thought about it, so you can do it one more time. And I was like, all right, you're right. Like, do it one more time.
2: You know, I honestly thought Calvin was going to retire earlier. He was kind of over it, and it wasn't just the losing. It was that he just didn't feel good. He joked about it with his teammates. He was like, I'm going to retire too. And everyone was like, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Uh, But he was serious. Um, and so the fact that he, his dad asked him and I asked him, and we were like, do you think you can do it again? Do you think that you're really ready? And when he took that second of hesitation. He decided, you know what, I can do this again. And I'm glad that he did, because I think if he had retired earlier, he, he wouldn't have been ready. I think everything happens in due time. And he, he finally waited until he was like, all right, my body has nothing else to give.
1: What if at all about how Barry Sanders retired influenced you? It did. Um, But it's funny, come to find out, it might have been some of the same reasons. You know, for me, um, like I said, my body was shook, my body was done. But at the same time, I feel like the the team, they weren't retaining some of the top talent that we had. So I saw it as a time to rebuild, and I'm like, I'm not here to rebuild. We're going to win, we have to win now, or we're not going to win at all. You know, we had staff, we had Sue, we had the offense that was putting out 5,000 yards a year. We had one of the, uh, we had a top defense. You know, we had some mean defensive linemen in there, you know, we just added a couple more pieces in the back end there, you know. Why did your first year away, you were retired, why did you want nothing to do with the game? I, I didn't, I was, I was done with football. I was just like, I've been around it all my whole life, you know, or at least until this point and I'm done with it. I just didn't have anything for the game. Maybe it was part of the way I was treated when I left from the Lions too. But it wasn't long, it didn't take I mean, it, uh, The next, the following year, I started watching a little bit more. The year after that, I was watching about every game. I was like, man, I'm like, there's, a, there's not too many more guys that I actually grew up playing with that are still playing. So I wanna be able to watch some of these guys play. Did you ever think there was a chance he could come back?
2: From after retirement? Yeah. Oh no.
3: <laughs> you knew when he was done, that was it.
2: Absolutely, Calvin is a man of his word. If he says he's done,
3: He's done. So the injuries that you alluded to, uh, take me to a morning that you would
1: wake up while you were still playing. I mean, every morning, you know, especially the last couple of years, man, <laughs> I can't even walk. I, I, I get up in the morning and I literally slide across the floor, like shuffle, because I don't have any bend in my ankles, you know, because you wake up, everything's just super stiff.
2: Calvin would wake up in the morning and I would hear, <laughs> and it was his ankles. He didn't have the ability to like flex his ankle, so it would be his feet just sliding across the floor. I would call him Scooter at one point, and it started to kind of annoy him.
3: Name all the injuries that you can recall sustaining
1: during your career. You know, Broken fingers, uh, ankle sprains, uh, ligaments in the knees, not full tears, just partial tears. I fortunately never had a full tear since college. Um, but I think the ankles and knees, you know, the scopes, getting the knee drain before games, all that stuff took tolls. Well, let's see that finger, by the way. Which one? Well, that, yeah, that one. Yeah, of course, that one. So this one was stuck. So this one, was, it was stuck like this for the whole, like, 11 season. So I played the whole 11 season, like, catching balls, like, yeah, like this. And then I was like, man, I cannot keep playing like this, because sometimes a ball would hit that finger. Like, you know, and it would hurt like a mother. Uh, especially like, when Stafford's like, oh, throwing. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm like <laughs> he's all over throwing to me. So I think every time it would, like, straighten it out when it wasn't, it wasn't able to straighten out. And I just, it would hurt so bad. What
3: uh, was the first-year injury you alluded to in your Hall of Fame speech with the back? Yes, you yes. See, nobody knows career... about
1: that. It was so bad at the moment, I couldn't feel my legs. And I thought my career would be over. We're playing the Eagles. Uh, hmm... It's probably first half of the season, early in the season, playing the Eagles. And I had safety in the corner on me. I go up, they're literally, I'm in the middle of them. I go up, and they're up under me, so I'm thinking I'm going to fall, but I go down to the, like split. And I literally fall on the small of my back. I hit the ground, and I lay in there, and I'm literally like, I can't feel my legs. So I immediately start to tear up, and I'm like, oh sh-. like, I can't feel anything. And it took a little second, and Donathan McNabb come over. He's like, come on, little fella, get up, you know? And my coach is like, come on, we're gonna walk off this field. And I get up, he helped me up, and I end up like like hobbling over to the sideline. I was like, damn, coach, I can't feel my legs, man. <laughs> and it started to come back, it's really tingly. And um, I get off to the side and they bring the cart over, riding off the field. And this is why, I, this is why I hate Philadelphia fans, man. I was getting cart off the field and they were throwing shit and booing. I was like, y'all my just don't even know I can't even feel my legs. Like y'all some assholes. I literally couldn't run for like a whole like week or two. Like, and, and the coaches, they were pushing me, and I'm like, dude, y'all just don't, don't, nobody really understood because you can't see it. I, mean, I was hooked up to machines, like, by chiropractors that will like, pull my lower body and hold my other upper body and pull up and pull down. I'm like, it was terrifying. I'm like, I hope this thing don't mess up. <laughs> but, you know, the stuff like that, because I had discs, like, bulging and stuff like that, and it was just sharp pains. But that whole first year, even through, like, the end of the year, it took me a long time to get that back right. And even now, if I'm not constantly doing back exercises, like, it, I'll wake up. And it feels like, it feel, literally feel like I don't have a back.
3: You remember what those two weeks were like when you couldn't run? It was
1: hell because I had coaches that wanted me to play, that wanted me to get back on the field. I got doctors that not saying that, that's, that can't tell me what's wrong. Yeah. But I know that I can't. If I try to run, it's just like I'm getting stabbed in the back. Mm-hmm.
2: For us as fans, right? We sit back, we go to a game, a player gets hit, we're on to the next down. That, that injury is out of our mind. But for him, he takes that with him. He's still playing the rest of the game. And so I don't think people understand how much that can impact you, your mood. I mean, he'd, Calvin's a nice person, but he would be pretty cranky when he was hurt. It was like, okay, I know he's not feeling good, so I'll what would you do? give him some space. He's just crouchy, just didn't really want to talk, didn't have much to say. He'd be short. And it wasn't that he intended on being that way. Just, I think most people, if you're not feeling good, you don't really want to talk a whole lot.
1: How about issues with your body today? Today I'm good. I mean, so if I do a camp like for my guys and I'm out there doing the drills, I feel like I just played a full game. The next day I wake up in the morning, I'm shuffling across the ground again because I feel like I just played. Uh, Describe the feeling when you get a concussion. You know, um, you might blank out, you might see stars, you have headache. You can uh, I never got to the point where I've thrown up, but I've seen people get to the point where they've they've, uh, they've thrown up. Uh, You can't sleep. Uh, just headaches, migraines. I don't feel like I've had too many side effects from them. Yeah, and Hopefully. And what,
3: what, what, what do you mean when you see stars? Like, what's that actually? It's like, like literally like
1: blinking lights, you know? You never, like, you know, just blinking literally like, like you're like right here, but you you got blinking lights. How many, like, do you think you've had? Mm, I mean, true, it's hard to tell, man. I hear you say somewhere you think upwards of 10? Yeah, easily. I mean, you play, you're going to get a concussion every year if you play football. And how many of those do you, you as a player to actually report? I remember there was a discrepancy one time where I said I did and the line said I did, not and it was just like, okay, you're going to tell me. But, you know, they're just trying to protect their butts.
3: You say you have a concussion, and then you have to there's, go I mean, back and mean, say you misspoke. There's a
1: game that um, we played the Vikings, and I was going up over the middle, Matt threw it up, it was up, and it, it, it touched my hand, so I probably should have caught it, but I, I felt the line, I felt, uh, what's the name, the linebacker right up on him, I literally came down chin on his head and gosh are cheerless he always like when i got tackled he was always there he's my dog i got up too fast and i went right back down and he caught me <laughs> and i'm not sure if that was the same time when that happened but i mean like I mean, you could look at the, look at the film and see what happened like, that's a concussion
3: should doctors that diagnose concussions in the nfl
1: work for the team you're playing Hell for no no conflict of interest they're gonna do what the team wants all them, they're going to do what the team wants. The team wants you on the field, they're going to push you to get back on the field. You know, Not to say that there's not no doctors that take your best interest, not saying that all of our doctors on the Lions didn't do that, but I mean, there's a conflict of interest there clearly. Why do you think that hasn't been changed when it's so obvious? I mean, unless the NFL is going to go out there and pay for all the doctors, they're not going to let anybody just in. Concerns for lasting damage? Um, you know, all you do is just pray for the best. You just live life to the fullest like, while you're here, and like I say, just we're just trying to find solutions that that'll help us out. You alluded to this a, a bit ago
3: when we were talking about retirement and Barry Sanders. You've, I mean, pretty publicly sh- said you didn't feel like you were treated the way you should have been on the way out. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um How so? You know, for me, you know, I felt like I did a lot for the city. You know, honestly, I mean, talking about dollars and cents. I mean. I I played half my contract and I earned half the money on the contract, so why are you coming after me? But what really made me feel that way was like, dang, when you see Romo come out, you see Andrew Luck come out, you see how their owners take care of them. You know, when we're playing with the Lions, I mean, you see them out of practice, but, I mean, I don't think that that was an everyday thing, you know, when I was playing. And how do you think that different dynamic ultimately ended up impacting the end result? Well, that affected us because they just see us as we're just pawns out there, we're just numbers. You know, they don't see the personalities, they don't see the people. I'm just now getting to learn the ownership. I didn't. I never really spoke to them when I played.
2: It's not just about the money being paid back, that, that's the first step, um, but it's in ensuring that this doesn't happen to any other players, right? If you have people who are the face of your organization, they're working hard, I think steps have to be made to ensure that they feel respected on their way out.
3: How did the, the team re- respond, either privately or publicly when
1: you first
3: kind of addressed your
1: misgivings? Uh I don't even remember how the team actually responded. I mean, I spoke to ownership, you know, that day when I told the team that I was done. So, you know, they were just like, you know, thank you. We appreciate, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, and what do you make of their efforts to resolve it? Not really any effort. <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, they sent this some stuff, but it's not, it hasn't been really any effort to resolve it, so. Do you think it's likely that, that there will be positive resolution. that would be nice. You know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, close the chapter, you know, but I'm not gonna, you know, bend over backwards to try to do anything because I didn't do anything. I did my job. What do you think has to happen to make it right? Um, I'm not saying they gotta repay me the the 1.6 all up front, but then they figure out a way to do it and not and <laughs> not have me work for it because I already did the work for it.
3: Because that was the offer that was right. made, right? That come work for it. Right. <laughs> That's a joke. What do you think has to happen to repair it?
2: Well, I think there need to be more conversations, and I think you've got to stop letting people who don't know the whole background of situations make all of the decisions. It can't, decisions can't just be based on money, right?
3: Your wife, who you know once you worked for the team, who mm. is you know, your staunchest defender and kind yeah. of t- tough lady, she said, it's the principle. It's petty. Pissing match over one point six million when they actually saved money. Time can't heal all wounds. That's what she said the other day well, on the phone.
1: That's, and I will put it like this. Imagine like you had a friend. Or maybe not even a friend, just somebody. They gave you something and then they take it back. And are y'all gonna still really hang out? You know, are y'all still cool? Like and, and imagine you did a whole bunch of work for it too. It's the principle. It's the principle of it, like, no, you cannot have me back unless you put that money back in my pocket. I ain't got to do it all at once, you ain't got to do it, but you got to commit to do it in the right way. You know, don't have me, I'm not working for it. I don't mind coming and doing work for the the organization because I love football, I love pouring back into the team. Well, there ain't no way in the world I'm coming back over there to do anything unless that's coming back, and I see how it's coming back. I probably shouldn't have said Fran because it wasn't a friend. It's more of a call, you know. Just it wasn't a friend situation because a friend that would hurt a little more. And with a friend, I probably tried to f- figure out a way to work out. There was no friendship there. It was just a work relationship.
3: Is that why you consciously kind of decided
1: not to address the team in the Hall of Fame speech? Um, I mean, mama always tell you, if you ain't got nothing good to say, don't say it at all, right? So, (laughs) you know, I don't have anything um, to say uh, to the organization personally, but the fans, they made it that much more, you know, know, great to be in that stadium, you know, to play in front of because, I mean, one, what we've been through here in Detroit and, you know, what we built out of that, you know, coming from 0-16 and the fans still being there all that time and supportive, you know. You were disappointed, but you never stopped showing up. Every week you showed up. And this is motivating me to do the same thing for you. You love me and my family unconditionally over these 15 years. You know, I love the city. I've been to all the sports venues. I mean, it's a great town for sports. So, uh, you know, that's why I said what I said, you know, but I don't have, I just not have anything to say.
3: And obviously, you're one of the greatest wide receivers ever to live, one of the greatest mm-hmm. Lions players of all time. I mean, there is the desire to figure it out and repair the relationship, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, I love football. You know, it's not, it's, it ain't about the team. You know, I still pour into those guys when I can. You know, I still hang out with those guys when I can. To all my teammates and coaches over the Platte, all, over all the levels I've played, could you please stand for a second? I just want you to know I valued every moment I spent with you on the field, in the locker room, and with our families. These relationships and, and friendships will last a lifetime. And I want you to know they've helped carry me to this moment right here. If the team wants to, you know, get their stuff together, that's cool. I'll be happy to um, come back and pour into the team. I do it with other teams, so (laughs) we might as well be the Lions, too. Shoot. They got to get their stuff together, though, first. Married life. Yeah. Um, Why Brittany? Well, this is is how I met Brittany. Brittany was working as an intern my second year in the league. It was
2: summer training camp. This is back in the two-a-day time, so everyone's exhausted. Um, He was playing, and I just kept seeing these fly balls flying in my direction. I was like, man, that guy can't catch for anything.
1: So Roy Williams at the time, he was like, man, you see that girl over there? You know, you got camp eyes, you know. Any, any, any female at the time, just walking around, because all you see is dudes. All, any female right. looks good. <laughs> right. And Roy was like, man, I bet you won't go say nothing. I'm like, man, you crazy. How much you want to bet? And he put 100 on it, so. You know what I'm saying? Long story short, he gave me that 100 I went to go meet her uh, after practice when she was on her way to the car. I feel like I was all nasty and sweaty probably. But anyway, I tracked her down, went to go holler at her.
2: I didn't find that out until years afterward. But yeah, so that's why those... Fly balls kept coming in my direction. I guess he was trying to get my attention.
1: I uh, love it first sight. Yeah, no. She was like, nope, don't want no parts of that because I know. I'm like, how you know? She's like, there's a thing called social media. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Now social media gets you in trouble. But and I'm you're awesome. also a
0: football player too, and she, yeah. you know, grew <laughs> that, up in a football family and, a football and probably family. probably knows better.
1: Is exactly. that? Exactly. She already knows. She's like, okay, y'all out here being dogs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. You know, and but it was six years later, five years later before we even really, really got acquainted again. So how did you guys go out for the first time? She hit me up saying, I'm coming through Atlanta, you know, and I'm like, oh shoot, that's what's up, but I'm going to Florida, I'm going out to Miami with the boys, you know. And she's like, oh shoot, I'm going to Miami too. And I'm like, oh shit, that's crazy. I'm going out for my birthday. And I'm like, oh shoot, this is an opportunity. <laughs> so we're down there and and I actually get her a cake.
2: I did not expect that for a a big 6'5", 230-pound man to have someone bring in a birthday cake with sparklers to one of the hottest clubs in Miami. No one would be expecting that, but yeah, now that was really sweet.
1: (laughs) It worked. And then from that point on, we were like, we're talking, and now we're here. Yeah. Okay, so one of the stranger proposal stories. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So... The night of proposal, I I'm getting some award in Baltimore.
3: Wait, 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 we need to backtrack okay. to, to you mailing a package to the house and asking her to pick it up for you. I totally forgot about that. Wow.
2: So Calvin, he called me one day. We were going to France on vacation. He called me and he said, hey, I've got this box. It's in the cabinet. Can you go grab it? I'm like, yeah, sure. He calls me maybe 30 minutes later and he's like, just keep it with you. Put it in your purse. Don't look at it. I'll come and get, I'll see you when you get here. I'm like, okay, why is he being so weird about this, this box?
3: And this is like a year before you propose. This is a while before I proposed. So
2: we go to France and I'm starting to think, maybe there's an engagement ring in there. Is he going to propose? So the whole trip, I'm on guard. I'm like, okay, this is it. He's gonna propose. The trip goes by. And, and you're in France. And like, we're in France. It's beautiful. Nothing. So I'm like, okay, did he change his mind? What did I do? What's happening? What's in that box? Is it for me? Is it for someone else? What was it? So fast forward a year later, we just kind of forgot about it, and he proposed in Baltimore.
1: We're walking back at the pier, and I was like, you know, let me see your finger, you know, and I was messing with her, I'll, cause I, I knew I was gonna, do. I was gonna propose her that night, but I wanted to mess with her before. And I Did, had a did re- she know it was coming? She didn't know it was okay. coming. She started to get excited and I was like, I just want to measure your finger, see what your ring size is or whatever. I was just <laughs> messing around and she was
2: pissed. So he, he kept asking me, he was like, well, what size ring do you wear? And I was like, I don't know, like, well, I have a ring sizer, can I put it on your hand? I was like, who carries a ring sizer? Like, A, where'd you get that? B, why do you have it now? It's midnight.
1: She was very mad, she started to storm off. And I was like, hold on, hold on, come back, you know, and then. I got down on my knee and I actually pulled a ring out and actually proposed to her and yeah, she said yes and that was that.
2: And I finally asked him, I said, what was in that box a year ago? And he was like, oh yeah, your ring was in there. I just couldn't find the right time to do it. (laughs) I think he forgot he had it there, honestly.
1: (laughs) Um, Done with uh, kids? Done with kids. She says we're done, we're done. I got three boys. I got, um, I got a seven-year-old boy um, from a former relationship. He's seven years old. And then I got, a, I got a three-year-old and I got a four-month-old.
3: What's the hardest part of parenting in the way uh, you you want with the, uh, your son that lives in Atlanta? It's
1: tough because obviously, you know, your co-parent might not see eye to eye on everything, but, you know, it's just really just, you know, trying to keep the lines of communication open. They weren't great at first because obviously, you know, you got the whole baby mama situation, and you're not married. There's tension there between families and stuff. We all went through that, but that was, you know, seven years ago, and now we're at a point where, you know, I invite her to the Hall of Fame ceremony. You know, him and the mom came, and we're all in there just, you know, we even partied after together. So it's a good thing to be uh, in a situation where we're all on the same page. What do you like as a dad? Ah,
2: oh, Calvin's a great dad. He t- t- turns into, like, a big kid when he's around our boys. I mean, they horseplay so much. I'm honestly nervous for someone to get hurt because he likes to get down and play with them on the floor, but he, he loves to play with the kids. And that's one thing I'm thankful that he, you know, he's got all his faculties about him so that he can play with them.
1: And
3: how do you and Brittany co-parent?
1: You know, we, we switch off. Like, there'd be some times where, you know, I'd be on the boys hard and then she'd be chill and she like, Cal- calm
2: down, they're all right. I think we've got a good balance of good cop, bad cop. Um, for the most part, um, our kids will, they know that neither one of us is, is going to play around with them, but at the same time, we're their safe space. So whatever it is they have to talk about or emotions that they may not be able to express yet, we're here to help them with that.
3: And, so. and he said on the rare occasion, you do get mad, he doesn't mess with you.
2: Oh, yeah, no. he He's like, all right, let me, let's, let's leave her alone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't say nothing to her when she get on. I'm just let her like,
1: say, let her do what she do. How much private receiver consultation work do you still do? Um, Probably a couple every year. I don't do as much when I first um, came out because I just, you know, you want to be in the game, and I still want to be in the game, but I just don't have the time to do it as much as I used to. But I love to go travel and meet new guys, especially guys that are that a lot of guys try to get you know me with tall guys that are you know maybe even taller or lankier, just can't move their feet as well. Prime example of like, hey, my feet weren't all, weren't always on fire; they weren't they didn't always move real fast, but I worked them out. What do you enjoy about that? I love just pouring into the guys and really just you know just seeing them. I mean, I'll try to dump everything into them. I just wanted to grasp a couple of things, and I just want to see it in the game. Like, like uh, I had the opportunity to talk, chat with Chris Godwin, you know, when he was a young man. See him now as a champ down there in Tampa and playing with Tom Brady. And he, you know, tell me, thank you. I'm, I just hope I'll be able to pour into guys like that, man, because uh, it means a lot just to, you know, see those guys have success, especially after you've uh, been able to uh, work with them a little bit. Why locker room consulting? It's a perfect name, you know, Rob, I, and we came back from Italy doing like a Italian football league um, Super Bowl. They had other Super Bowl over there, we went out there and um, we were a special guest. And we're sitting over there thinking about just about business opportunities. You know, we're just sitting in all these rooms, you know, just talking business and from football to, you know, apparel and different things. And we're just like, man, you know, a lot of guys, you know, when they come out the league, they get taken advantage of. You know, I've, I've been part of that. You want to stop it. You want to help guys put a good team around them of advisors, so that you know they can you know cut through a lot of the BS and you know just really. You know, get to what whatever it is that they want to do in their post-football life and just surround them with a network of people that they can lean on. So that's our goal with locker room consulting. And then as well, create business opportunities for them to invest in as well. But I think the first and foremost is just making sure the player themselves is, is in a good shape.
3: Do I have this right that you franchised an anti I did. pretzel?
1: And that's one of those business ventures that I'm talking about. It didn't, didn't go really well for me because, you know, one thing I learned about is you got to be there. You got to be there. You got to put your stamp on it. You know, And that, I was up here most of the time, and that was down in Georgia. One thing that I learned really quick after playing football is that not everybody's going to do things the way you do it and, and try to live up to a standard of excellence in everything that they do. You know, I had to change from what I used to say, like living up to, you know, trying to be perfect. I mean, for me, I strove for perfection, knowing that I wasn't going to be perfect, but trying to do every little thing to the best of my ability. That's all it was, really, for me. You know, it's really just trying to strive for excellence in everything that you do. So what was the kind of takeaway from that experience? The big takeaway for me was that if I'm not there, if I'm not there to see it, if I'm not there to push it, you know, I can't rely on somebody else to, to put in the same kind of effort that I would. What attracted you to real estate? Uh, real estate was tangible. It you was know, something I could see, you know, something that I, I could actually you know, uh, put my hands on, something I could actually move, and it's not, it's not something intangible like a stock you know, where you're not sure what the rhyme or reason is for what it's doing. So that's easier for guys to come out of the league to, to grasp, because some of them are already doing it, and, and it's just something that you can see. It's much easier to um, deal with. It. You know, it's hard to trust a lot of other people to do, do, do like, you know, your stock portfolio or stuff like that. I mean, fortunately, I'm in a fortunate position to have some people I can trust. And that's why I wanted, that's why locker room is existing, so we can help put other people in those good situations.
3: And how do you go about deciding what to invest in?
1: Uh, just, you know, use her team, use my advisory team. You know, we dive through it. dive through all the pros and cons.
3: Is it true that your mom was instrumental in helping negotiate your
1: kind of big NFL contract? You know what? I know Bus Cook. You know, he's my agent. I know Bus, man. Bus is going to relay. He's going to relay whatever's going on to Mama Johnson. So I'm sure that he relayed uh, whatever was happening to, to my mom. So that's why she was uh, thoroughly involved. I guess that's the one thing I've learned to appreciate growing up, you know, is that she's going to dive into the full detail, nitty gritty, get into it. And and that kind of annoyed me at first, you know, especially as a grown man. But, you know, she's been great, you know, as far as like, you know, imparting that on me, like, hey, you better go through it with a fine tooth cone.
3: Best and worst financial decision you've made?
1: I feel like the best has been, uh, hmm, I would like to say, you know, joining the cannabis industry, but that's yet to be told. That story's yet to be told. The worst one I would have to say is uh, probably loaning money. You know, you loan money, and you think you're gonna get it back, (laughs) especially like people that are close to it, to you. But for anybody, I would tell now, like you loaning money to a friend or anybody close to you, just know that you're not getting it back. You know, and I've loaned a lot of money to people, and you know, I've grown. I'm just like, okay, I know I'm not gonna get it back. You know, it's cool with me now. But I think that what that does though is it sours relationships. And relationships are one thing. Like money, you can always get back. But relationships, man, um, you know, those are very, you got to cherish those. You know, and don't, if you can, not allow money to get involved in those relationships. Don't, because that will, money can easily mess up a relationship. Uh, Best financial advice you ever received? Best financial advice I ever received was probably from my attorney. Just let me read everything you get. (laughs) You know, those attorneys, man, they, they pull out. Like, okay, this isn't right. This right here, this little this little sentence right here can be the difference in like, you getting your money, you're not. You know, right. stuff like that, you know, stuff that I wouldn't see. And
3: is there kind of a, a grander picture behind how you go about managing your money?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a great team. They've been around for a very long time. And one thing I think that they have done that others haven't is just been very, very big on education. You know, anything I need, anything I don't know, anything I might not know, if they feel like I know, I I got people over there that are great at explaining anything I need to know.
3: Before you found success, how did you find smart ways to save money or to make it financially?
1: Man, I ain't had no money. It just went from like not having anything to having something. Like, that's really. (laughs) My first job was bagging groceries at Publix. And, you know, my second job was actually working at Delta, and that's putting the bags on the plane, you know, and, uh, you know, the money that we made from that, shoot. That spent pretty fast probably. I'm trying to think, I'm like we I'm trying to think what happened to that money in college. Like we didn't make a whole whole lot of money, but maybe a couple thousand dollars, but shoot, that goes fast. What's the deal with you and powdered mashed potatoes? <laughs> That's a college thing, man. We got no money, man. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we was in college, and um, that yeah, was but my thing, that's my go-to. Don't, don't athletes on
3: scholarship, can't they eat for free in the cafeteria? We can, but it's <laughs> like okay. certain so. times, too, though. <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> like, I had a heavy potato diet, like, from high school to college. <laughs> high school, you wouldn't believe it, but all I ate was French fries every day. Really? Every day in high school, like, they had, like, you can buy a regular lunch. You, would, you know, you know, buy, like, f- burger and fries. I had like two dollars to spend on lunch, or three dollars to spend on lunch. every day, So I bought French fries and a drink. You know, <laughs> so that was good. But you know, and then I got to college. You know, I'm always been a I'm a, I'm a fiend for French fries. So uh, or potatoes and yeah, powdered potatoes, man. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know what got me on them, but it was just easy. Go get some powder and I could eat it, and I'm good. I don't know why, but. I love them. Better diet today? Oh yeah, much better diet today, yeah, oh yeah. I actually make my own potatoes from scratch now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
3: But I mean, otherwise, like I can't imagine you'd be in the shape you are today even if you are still working at aggressively, right?
1: No, nah, yeah, I mean, I try just try to eat right, man. That's, that's the biggest thing, you know, just, just eat a good diet, you know. I mean, I don't exercise probably as much as I should do, but I think that eating a good diet keeps me in pretty decent shape. Tell me about shooting a kid with a, a paintball gun who was riding his bike? I did a lot of nonsense with paintballs when I was in college. When I was a kid, it wasn't just random. It was always somebody I knew, you know. (laughs) So when we were at Georgia Tech, we were like on the fourth floor of our dorm, and we overlooked the parking area. So we had tennis player David or just whoever's riding by or walking by or the cars, if we know the cars, oh, yeah, we're lighting them up. Yeah. So people eventually just stopped coming down this way because they know that they come by there, they're getting hit with paintball guns. I remember one time we shot up one of our friends, um one of my friends' cars and he pulled up. He's like, dude, look what y'all did in my car, yeah, yeah. And then a cop came, and the cop came, he saw I guess we had our paintball guns, he he got out, he pulled his gun, I was like, Oh, oh really? Like, hey, it's just paintballs, it's paintballs, you know. It was like, we're just playing around, we know the good. So then dude, is this was one to do defensive lineman, Daryl. And he wasn't tripping, you know, was just mad at us, but the cop pulled his guns like, "Hey man, we we go to school here. Don't do that." Like, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but um, yeah. Paintballs. I mean, yeah. Don't be around me if I got a paintball guy. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to my chat with Hall of Fame receiver Calvin Johnson and his wife Brittany. During our time together in Canton, Ohio, we also chatted with Johnson's immediate family plus some former coaches and teammates, including quarterback Matt Stafford. You can watch all that on our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also there, a tour of Johnson's home office memorabilia. Find out what special piece of gear he was able to stash away before the Hall of Fame could. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast. Drop us a rating and review to share your thoughts. Thanks again for listening.